Hello, everybody. Welcome to It's Real with Jordan and Demi. Alongside Demi Ramos, I'm Jordan Edwards. We're actually in two different apartments, even though it looks like we're in the same. <laughs> oh my God. That's not in Demi's in the Bronx. I'm in Brooklyn. So, today we have a very special guest. He is one of the most successful singer songwriters of the 80s and 90s. Wrote more, he recorded more than a dozen top 20 hits of his own and wrote numerous hits for other people. He has a new memoir out July 6th. Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Marks. Hi, guys. Hey, Richard, what is going on? Oh, you know, I'm just hanging out with you. I got to say, after all these years, the one thing that's never changed, you have one of the best heads of hair in the industry. <laughs> Thank you, man. I appreciate yeah. it. That's some good genes. Good genes. Yeah. 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 I thank, yeah. I thank, I'm, I'm not religious, but I thank who, I, I thank the hair universe every the day. The hair universe. Yes. So you have this new memoir out. And first I got to ask, what prompted you to write a memoir in the first place? Because it's not easy. It's a lot of work. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't start out as a memoir. It didn't start out as anything except about 10 or 11 years ago, I started touring uh, as a solo acoustic artist. So instead of playing with my band, which I still would do from time to time, and I still love playing with my band, but I, I thought that I wanted to try to do some shows on the road just with me and a guitar and a piano because it scared the crap out of me. Yeah, and I and I think that it's important as an artist and as a creator to do things that scare the crap out of you, you know, from time to time. Totally. So I, right up to the last minute of preparing, you know, I sort of had my repertoire. I had my set list. I had, I thought, a really good um, mix between hits and other songs that I wanted to play. Um, the one thing I realized I needed besides the songs and the and the instruments were stories and because i don't know about you but if i go see somebody play a concert i want to feel like i hung out with them i want to be entertained in between the songs totally and so it just you know coincidentally i've had a lot of wacky shit happen to me and like really funny stories that have happened and and so i approached those shows kind of like i approached you know sitting down to if like we were to just sit down and have a martini and I'd go, okay, Demi, you, you're never going to believe what happened when such and such happened. Right. And so it became a very conversational show. And I think that that's why people kept coming back, you know, time and time again, and why it remains to be a successful thing. And that became the impetus for the book. I would, I don't think I would have ever written a, a it, and it didn't start out as a memoir. It started out as a bunch of stories behind my famous songs and and it wasn't really until Simon and Schuster got involved about a year and a half two years ago where my editor said you know I think you should really consider writing more about you because I've always been a very private person you've never read about me in the tabloids or any of that crap you know yeah um I was gonna was are you afraid at moments um being vulnerable and kind of revealing yourself in in those kind of ways yeah yeah, absolutely. Um, it was, I'm going to let this car horn go like two more seconds and then I'm closing the door. Um, in fact, hang on. Hang That's on. the joy of live interviews. Yeah. Oh, wow, now there's two of them. 
Nice, nice. Yeah, I'm yeah, I, 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 I'm in Brooklyn, and so I have the the Brooklyn sounds outside my window. Yeah, I, yeah. I feel like um, sorry, to uh, me, it was uh, the answer is is it Demi or Demi? Uh, people choose. It's I Demi. kind of like both. I haven't picked one. Demi. I, you know, I'm, I can go with either. Demi. Demi. Yeah. Demi's good. Demi's um, good. And Jordan jumped right to it. He was like, "It's Demi." It's Demi. Well, it's been uh, actually Demi for years. So yeah, don't change on me now, Demi. Yeah. Um, it was really intimidating, and and then the more I started to flesh all that stuff out, I realized that. I would approach it the same way I just, I, I just described. There are stories I would tell you about my life if we just hung out over dinner, right? Even if I didn't know you that well, there are certainly things I would tell you about my life. But I wouldn't necessarily delve into details in certain ways because it's just inelegant and it's not what I, it's not what I had. And so that's how I wrote these. That's how I wrote about the personal aspects of my life. I wrote it in a way that felt like this is an entertaining story and I feel like it's worth writing, but I'm not delving into details that I'm going to regret. Well, let's start, you know, you, you talk about your family growing up um, in the sixties, your dad, Dick was a famous jazz pianist. Uh, your mom did jingles. Is that correct? She sang jingles. Yeah. Or, yeah. 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 So well, my dad wrote them. My dad was a jazz pianist and then he, 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 segued into a career writing and producing these famous commercials, these jingles, and my mom sang on them. So it was a family business. Can you give an example of something your dad wrote that people would know? I mean, I don't know what your audience is in terms of your demographic, because, you know, these were, this this was in the 70s and early 80s, but it was like, um, two scoops of raisins in a package of Kellogg's Raisin Bran was one of the course. Of course. Of course. And then ask any mermaid you happen to see, what's the best tuna chicken, chicken of the sea? My dad wrote yeah. that. I mean, you know, a yeah. He my grandpa was saying that actually, not even kidding. Your grandpa kidding. what? The, the fish of the sea, the tuna thing. He wow. I remember, yeah, that's insane. Okay. Uh, yeah, in interesting little sidebar there. Um, so, my 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 point is, Richard. Um, were you playing piano at age three? Like, were you, or or did your parents kind of let you find music at your own pace? Uh, both. Mm -hmm. they, they, my parents forced me to take piano lessons when I was five, and I hated it so much that after a couple months, they just let me quit because I was miserable. I hated it. And, and they agreed that the teacher that they found for me w was not helping. I mean, he was, I'm sure he was a good teacher, but I was just, I was a little kid and I was bored out of my mind, you know? Mm -hmm. And then when I was about 11 or 12, I wanted to play guitar. And so I, they found me a, an acoustic guitar teacher. So I actually really learned how to play guitar on, on an acoustic guitar. And so I was playing Neil Young songs and John Denver songs and, um, and that was a blast because my teacher, her name was Sally Miller. She was a wonderful woman. And she taught me, um, she taught me to the instrument via songs that I liked. And, and so it, in a way I could criticize it as being, it was a little limiting in terms of, you know, mastering the instrument. But as a kid, 
I could play, you know, an REO Speedwagon song now. And, you know, I, I could impress whatever girl I had a crush on with, you know, trying to just strum along to a song. Soon after that, though, it, I got serious about it. And I went back to the piano. I started playing. the. We had a piano in my basement. And I would wait till everyone was out of the house. And I would go into the basement and I would teach myself Billy Joel songs and Elton John songs and and so I started playing the piano willingly and that really sort of led me to writing songs soon thereafter. In, in the memoir you talk about a phone call you had early on with Lionel Richie. Yeah, um, yeah. So can you tell us about that phone call and how that kind of changed your life? I had written four songs I think at that point, it's a total of four songs. And I had a demo tape of them. And I was a uh, junior in high school. Yeah, I would have been like ending my junior year in high school. And my best friend at the time was a year older than me and he was just starting college in Atlanta. And so he had this cassette tape of mine and he would play it in his dorm, just like he would play Queen records or whoever, you know, like pop music. And his friends were like, who is that? Oh, he's my friend from high school. And he's gonna, he's trying to make it as a singer and songwriter. And, you know, his friends would be like, oh, that's kind of cool. And then he, one of his roommates knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy who knew Lionel Richie. And Lionel was just about to leave the Commodores. And about two months later, my phone rang and it was Lionel Richie telling me that he'd heard my tape and he really liked it. <laughs> Wow. It was bizarre. And then about a year after that, less than a year after that, he really encouraged me in that phone call to move to LA and to scrap any plans I had to go to college and to just give it a try because he felt like I was really talented enough to give it a real try. And having someone like that, I mean, he was next to Michael Jackson, maybe the biggest artist in the world. Yeah. Having someone like that. got it right at the beginning of his solo career. Yeah. Yeah, which is really cool. So he encouraged me to move to LA, which I did after I graduated from high school. He invited me down to a session he was doing on his first solo album. And I ended up singing background vocals on that session, which was a song called You Are. You are the sun, you are. And so at 18, I was singing on a big hit record. And then I sang on some other songs on that first album. And then I came back a year later and sang on all night long and running with the night. And, and then he recommended me as a background singer to Kenny Rogers, who was also still huge at the time. And it was doing background vocal work for Kenny Rogers, where I sort of stumbled into writing a song that Kenny recorded. And then my songwriting career was like off to the races. Yeah. So to Demi's point, how did you kind of parlay that from being the songwriter back backup singer and so really you had demos that you were kind of carrying around throughout yeah. the mid eighties, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, pretty early on when I was about 20, 21, I wrote should have known better, which was sort of like the first song on my demo tape for a couple of years, maybe three years that every record company rejected. And by the way, it sounded, the demo sounded exactly like the record. Um, and then maybe a year later I wrote endless summer nights, and that was on my demo tape right behind Should Have Known Better for years, and every record company rejected it. 
And they didn't know what they had. They were, you know, that's that's insane that they didn't have any idea. It's pretty typical, though. I think if you ask any successful artist, they're gonna they're not gonna, they're gonna ne never tell you the story that their first time they went into a record company they got signed. I mean, it's like it's unheard of. And so, yeah, I I definitely kicked around for several years, um, but I was yeah I was so young, and then when I did get signed to my record deal i was 23 so i it wasn't like i was you know some veteran of the industry at that point you talk a lot about um touring you know you said after your first success that you went to your manager and you said i want more i want to do more yeah. um so do you enjoy being have you and you, even you opened this interview about talking about your acoustic shows so has touring always been a love of yours that's a good question, and the answer is no. Um, and I'll try to I'll try to condense my answer a little bit. But when I was when I was, you know, in high school, and when I was writing songs for other people, and I was really hoping to get a record deal, I wanted to be I wanted to make records. I wanted to be a record producer, and I wanted I, I loved the idea. I loved being in the studio. I loved creating songs and playing live in a way is the difference is like when when I'm in the studio when I'm writing a song I'm creating a song when I'm on stage I'm recreating a song and but I still of course wanted to be a rock star you know I wanted to like wear cool jeans and boots and your denim jackets were legendary man denim jackets. I had I had a fluffy mullet I wanted people to see it <laughs> um that's you and Lionel right there. Yeah. <laughs> now you have this was this is the mid eighties. This is can you tell the story behind this? This was when you were doing uh, all night long, correct? Yeah. Well, I don't think it was the all night long session, but it was the same album. It was the second album. So I think that was maybe. I think that was the day I sang on this song called "The Only One" that's on the Can't Slow Down album. It's funny because this is before you were signed, and you didn't have. You looked a lot less cool in that picture. Oh yeah. Signed, like the coolness happened, like as you became a solo artist. Well, two things happened uh, between that photo and me getting signed. One, uh, my Jufro turned into a mullet thanks to hair straightener because I have really curly hair, and so I was sort of like started to figure out how to. Well, I thought figure out at the time how to look less nerdy. Um, and I just sort of, you know, oh, that's the same era. Me and Kenny. Yeah, it's the same era. Now, tell us about this picture. What did you? What? What was? What were you? You were just hanging out with Kenny Loggins, or um, yeah, was it during was, a songwriting was, session, or or what? No, 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 no. Um, that was soon after I'd met Kenny, so I was probably about twenty in that picture, maybe nineteen or twenty. And I met Kenny Loggins. I was a huge fan of Kenny's, obviously, and I met him through um, a manager named Larry Larson, who was his manager at the time. And Kenny and I just sort of hit it off and we started hanging out and playing racquetball together. There was, I, I of course would have killed to write a song with him or whatever, but that was never in, in the plan for him. I mean, he just, he just sort of liked this kid that he was hanging out with. And, uh, and so he would invite me down to the studio and I would sing background vocals on demos for him. Or I don't think I did anything substantive with him. Like that picture, I think that I have a memory of 
that picture of me and Kenny was right after he and I carried a keyboard into the studio. I was sort of like, help that, I love that. I love that that's like the memory you have attached that. We were carrying yeah. a keyboard, yeah. Yeah, we were carrying this big keyboard into the studio. He needed somebody to help him carry a keyboard in. I was just like, like a gopher, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are the other anecdotes um, from your backup singer days? You talk about doing a session with Madonna. Yeah. And the one thing I got from that section when I read it was, Madonna was in charge in the studio. Can you talk about what it was like to see her kind of calling the shots and holding court? Well, I had, you know, at that time I had done enough session work that I knew that a lot of times the artist didn't come in for that. You know, I sang on a Whitney Houston record and I never met Whitney Houston until a dozen years later. Um, I sang on two George Benson records, never met George Benson. So it was not you know, it was not atypical for the artist not to be present for sessions like that. Madonna was the biggest star in the world at the time. This is for an album called True Blue. And so I was sure there was no way, why would she be at this background vocal session, you know? But man, I walked in and there she was. And I was struck by the fact that she was there. And then I was struck by her energy and her beauty and, she was nothing like I had pictured her or heard about. She, de she definitely had a toughness about her, but there was also like, she was such a pro and she knew exactly what she wanted and she was in charge. And I, I never really, no disrespect to her prior to that, but I, she never really did it for me. Like I, I didn't crush on her or anything like that. But then when I met her and I hung out with her for a couple hours, I went home thinking, oh my God, she's just the most awesome thing ever. You got it. I, I want to ask about the songwriting process. Um, you know, in your words, what makes a good song to you? What makes a hit song to you? Well, I mean, there's a difference between a good song and a hit song. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes they coexist. A lot of times they don't, and that's okay. Um, there are plenty of songs that I like, that I don't think are particularly good songs. I just like them. You know, like if I pick them apart, I could go, well, that lyric is ridiculous or that's not a good verse, but I here I am singing along to it. I like it. It makes me like, so I, I'm not a snob when it comes to that stuff. I'm only a snob when it comes to my own songs and that I don't ever want to just write whatever I don't want filler lyrics and I and I take it I take the the composition of songs seriously I work hard on constructing the best songs I can with melodies that are both memorable and interesting and sometimes surprise you um, I love songs that have this is something that doesn't exist in pop music at all in years but there was a time when a, what's called a surprise change, which means I'll give you a perfect example because I think even you guys would know the song "After the Love Is Gone" by Earth, Wind, and yeah, Fire. Yeah, the key, the big key change. Is that what you're talking yeah, about? So yeah. At every chorus, Maurice White goes, "Oh and oh, after the love." That when he goes the oh in the chorus, yeah. Yeah. that chord comes out of nowhere. Like you don't expect that chord to to start that chorus. <laughs> And David Foster, who wrote the music to that song, um, that's he, he said it's his proudest musical moment. And, and, but, and I was also one of those songwriters who tried to 
come up with surprise chords. I wrote a song that was, uh, it wasn't one of my biggest hits, but it was a, I think it was a top 20 single called Take This Heart in the 90s. And I'm really proud of that because it's a similar thing. I, I, the, the verse is in a certain key, and then I sing this high note that goes into the chorus, and it changes keys, and it's such a lift. And I, I live for stuff like that. So, Demi, it's like for me, I don't know what makes, I, I can't really deconstruct it in my mind. I just know when I hear things, I can discern whether I think it's a well-constructed song. Doesn't mean that I'll, it, it, like I hear really well-constructed songs that I don't particularly like. And I hear songs that I know are flawed that I love. So I, I'm, I'm no snob when it comes to that. When you were um, really, when you were churning out the hit singles, did you, have any pushback with the record label on what to release as a single or were the singles always kind of floating to the top and always agreed upon by you and the suits, so to speak? No, the only, the only time that that was ever, that's a good question. Um, I wanted my career to begin with don't mean nothing. I, you know, even though on the, on the debut album, I should have known better and endless summer nights, which I've been, as I said, carrying around on my demo tapes for years. And I really believed in those songs. I thought they would be hit songs. I hoped that they would be hit songs. When I wrote Don't Me Nothing, I just remember thinking, this is what I want people to first hear when they hear my voice on the radio. And it was a fight because I had also written Hold On To The Nights, which ended up being my first pop number one single. It was the last single released from the album. Um, I had people at the record company who wanted to take the easier way out. I really wanted to, to start at rock radio and don't mean nothing was the perfect candidate for that as well. And so it was a bit of a fight and it was a tough fight because I was a brand new artist. I really had, you know, it was my manager at the time who, who really kind of went in there swinging against the label and convincing them that we should go with don't mean nothing. After that, I would just deliver an album of songs and I would say, you know, you can get, you guys can put out whatever you want. I'm proud of every song on the album. The only thing that was a problem was after Right Here Waiting, which was huge, I was really disappointed that the label came back immediately with Angel Leah, which was sort of another, it wasn't a ballad, but it was close to a ballad. And, and it sort of cemented this, um, what I consider to be somewhat of an unfair uh, stereotype of me, which is just being this balladeer. You know? You're trying to make you into a straight adult contemporary yeah. ballad person. And I, in, in your memoir, you talk about that you actually turned down some opportunities to do big soundtrack ballads and songs for films because you didn't want to be put into that box. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was just... I think maybe there was some of it that was maybe a little childish on my part in that I was reacting to people who, like critics, who were saying, well, he's not really a rock singer, even though I started out at rock radio and I had you know, a couple of songs that were pretty big on the rock charts. I started to get this, you know, he's a fake rocker, he's not, and it was like, what, what? And so I think that that influenced me a little bit, but um, I also legitimately was a little irked because ballads, made up and still make up the smallest percentage of my recorded work, you know? So once in a while, one of my favorite things that there's a song on my, th 
third album called Streets of Pain that I, uh, I wrote with my friend Fee Waybell from The Tubes. And I, Tommy Lee from Motley Crue plays drums on it. Uh, Randy Jackson from American Idol plays bass. And Steve Lukather from Toto plays guitar. And it's a freaking rock. Like it's, I'm screaming through the song practically. And I love once in a while to play that for people. <laughs> Just to see their faces go. What's happening? Yeah, yeah. How do you feel about the current state of the music business and how much it's changed since the 80s and 90s? Um, do you like the the old the old way of of single 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 promote promote versus like the streaming world that we're in now? Yeah. The streaming thing is, you know, it's it's here to stay. It's not going anywhere, so it doesn't matter what I think. You know, I think I I think I feel about it the way most artists feel, especially if you're not an artist that came up in the last eight or 10 years in that the, the, uh, the problem is that up and coming songwriters now really can't make a living writing songs. You know, a, a, a huge number one streaming song might make you enough money to go to Chipotle a few times. You know? It's true. It's true. Um, that is, that needs to be fixed. You know, the way songwriters are compensated now versus the way we were. And this is not a case of like, I'm not worried about me. You know, I, I worry about my sons who are songwriters and, and the young up and coming songwriters who can't make a living just writing songs. That's got to change for sure. Um, you know, I can make up for it because I can tour and I, you know, I have a catalog of hit songs that still earn really well. But um, I think that Demi, the, the, the thing that I, and I, I always hesitate to answer this way because I never want to come off like some old fart, you know, but I feel like what, what's a bummer for me is that I hear things all the time that I think are so great. By the way, one of my pet peeves is when I'm talking to peers of mine who bitch about there's no good songwriting anymore and that is what does make you feel like an old person when you're, you're not listening it's all crap now yeah that's just so stupid and lazy and i look at these guys and go you you're obviously not listening to, just go check out new music tuesday you know or whatever They're, you're gonna hear really great stuff there's so much great music out there but i feel no i feel like the the model the industry model now has created such a sense of disposableness to songs. And so even songs that I think are so amazing that have some success are then gone like that. And you never hear them again. And that's disconcerting to me because I do think that there's a lot of great music out there. And I think that, that we're so bombarded with information that nothing really has any lasting power and that's a bummer. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned you done the Kenny Rogers thing. That was one of your first big, you know, maybe your first big true songwriting break. Yeah. And you've continued to write for country artists and work with country artists throughout the years. Uh, Keith Urban and, and Brad Paisley and Shadaisy and all these people. Why I never, you, I never worked with Brad Paisley, but you, you met Brad Paisley. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. 
correct that. Sorry, sorry. But you have worked <laughs> with Shadezi and um, yeah. and Vince other country Joe, artists. Yeah. Keith Urban. Um, why do you think that your style translates so well to country? Why your songwriting style, you know, lends itself to that to that genre? Um, well, number one, I'm, I'm a student of music, you know, my whole life, and I love all kinds of music. I I love a bunch of country music, and I always have. Um, when I was a kid, I listened to, you know, Boston and Journey, and I also listened to Merle Haggard and, you know, Conway Twitty, and I listened to everything. And And I think that as a songwriter, certainly as an artist, you can't do much of that sort of genre jumping. But as a songwriter, why, why wouldn't I write every kind of music I can? You know, I love all that kind of music, and I feel like I have the ability at least to potentially write something good in that genre. Um, well, a love I, song is a love song, you know, regardless of. Yeah, there's that, but there's also a, there's a, there's a sense of construction in a song that's gonna do well at country for the most part, even now, even though country music doesn't resemble what it used to, it's way, way more pop influenced, but they still want songs that talk about something real, that feel relatable and that are catchy. And so I feel like, I don't know, to me, a song is just a song. I could write a song today. And if you said to me, I love that, but I really, we need it to be a rock song. I'd be like, okay, I know how to record it. So it'll be a rock song. Or we really want, it's a great song. Can we make it country? Sure. One of your most famous songs you've written for another person, another group you you wrote uh this i promise you for in sync yeah um and we we have actually have a photo from that there you go there's the oh there you go it's, it's a little pixelated but uh you can see all the guys in there uh justin's got it got his there's a lot of baseball caps going on yeah um, and so, that, i always refer to that picture as oh look it's in sync with their dad <laughs> that was a great experience i i wrote that song by myself and i produced it by myself but I worked with those five guys to make that record. And this was at the peak of their success when they could have easily been five biggest assholes you could meet. They were gracious and totally professional and really, I'm still friends with JC Chasse to this day. Um, I, I'm so proud of, I, I remember watching Justin during the recording of that song and I knew he was gonna, I, I knew he was going to lead the group, I think, but I also knew that he was going to be a major force in the industry because his work ethic was unbelievable and his attention to his craft. And all he wanted to do was work. All he wanted to do was write songs and do demos. And um, that's what you need to have the kind of success he's had. It was no surprise to me. Um, so they, that's really high on the list of people I worked with that I really loved working with. And it's cool that you did everything yourself from scratch, the writing, the producing. That was that was your song. Yeah, yeah. That was before this era of writing songs via committee where, you know, my son, my son Lucas co-wrote the new Katy Perry single, which is called Electric, which just came out. It's a really great song. And, you know, he, he wrote a lot of the song with a friend of his and there are like nine writers on the song there are nine names as writers on the song yeah. sort of like yeah. okay that's just the way it's done now it's sort of you know it's bullshit but um and you got to split that spotify check now too yeah 
Um, you know, what I will say is when I've worked with Keith Urban, who I have immense respect for, and I think he's one of, he's one of my favorite artists and performers, aside from being, you know, someone I've spent a lot of time with and, and we've had great success together in his chart career. He's unique in that I don't particularly enjoy writing with Keith Urban. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that anyone does, and he will get this. This is not anything that we haven't talked about, or maybe even he hasn't said. He's so difficult to please, and he so changes his mind. Like on a Tuesday, he'll go, this is the greatest song we've ever written together. And on Wednesday, he'll go, this is a piece of shit. I want nothing to do with it. <laughs> He's so all over the place when it comes to like, zeroing in and, and, and accepting something that he's part of as a creator. And it's confounding, it's, it's frustrating. But then every time when it's done, I'm so proud of it. Like Long Hot Summer was in the last hit we had together as writers. And he, it was a number one single for him. And it was, that was probably the easiest song we wrote together, but it still took many sessions and a lot of back and forth and, um, but when I hear what he does with these songs, I'm so elated because I'm such a fan of his as an artist. Before we let you go, Richard, uh, you have the memoir out. You, um, but on the music side, what are you working on? What are your summer plans? Are you going to tour soon? Um, well, I'm supposed to play the first couple of shows at the end of August up in Northern California, which looks like it's going to happen. Um, if all goes well in Europe, I'll be playing a few nights at Union Chapel in London in September, and then just a couple of scattered shows, but then I hit the ground running next year. I'm, I'm touring the entire year to make up for lost time, and uh, as we all are, as we're all dying to get back on the road and be in front of audiences, so we'll kind of see how that goes. But um, the rest of this year, yeah, I'm, I'm finishing up some new music, but I'm also um, I'm doing something I'm not sure when we're going to release this, but I, I, I'm starting something called The Vault, which is going to be a series of releases, probably on vinyl, of songs from the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and 2010s, which, just, that I, which I love, but for whatever reason, didn't make it onto an album. That's amazing. Um, and just wow. put them out, you know? Um, they only the ones that still hold up for me. I've been going through all these old mixes and stuff and I'll hear a song and I'll go, why didn't I put that on that record? This was just so, wow. this is great. Oh, so great. Hey. Yeah. Oh, and last thing we have to we'll talk about, Richard, before we let you go is, is one thing that runs through this biography is the love with your wife, Daisy, and the support. And we actually pulled a, pulled a, uh, a little segment of that. Demi, could you, could you read that? So you say you're a romantic. Mm -hmm. um, but I thought it was super cool. Uh, and I quote, I love romance and I love the process of seduction. Uh, though Daisy, though Daisy, I would discover that in the right love affair, the, the seduction never has to end. Yeah. So I'm pretty sure you've, you've been all over the world and yeah, I thought that was pretty. And your wife, Daisy Fuentes, is kind of like you. It's your rock. It's the. Th it's one thing that just kind of your your constant. Yeah, yeah. We found we found we talk about it all the time. We found in each other later in our lives, our um, you know, a, a combination of things. It's not just you know your lover and your partner, but my best friend and a person I have great admiration and respect for, 
Um, and there's no, you know, sort of silly competition or jealousies or like, it's just, we found each other at the right time in our lives. And, um, and yeah, I, uh, we've been together now. We've known each other about eight years. Yeah. Yeah. Eight years. Cause we married six years this December. And I just, I find myself like this with her all the time. If I was married to Daisy Fuentes, I would also be making. Yeah, dude, yeah. dude, I find myself going, "Oh my god, I married Daisy Fuentes." I mean, I don't ever be like, "Yeah, whatever." No, I'm like, "Holy crap!" What? what look at my life. I appreciate the honesty. I appreciate that. <laughs> All right, Richard, we'll let you go. I'm sure you got a lot to do, but thank you so much for joining us on the show. We really appreciate my it, and god. really appreciate you telling these stories to us. Thank you guys so much. You guys take care and be safe. I'll right. see you on tomorrow. All right. All right. Bye. Okay. That was Richard Marks. Demi, that was fun. He's that guy has known so many people and has crossed so many paths. And this memoir, which we had an advanced copy of, of course, because we're interviewing him, is kind of like a microcosm of LA, the LA music scene in the 80s and early 90s. It really gives you a sense of what it was like to be there. And so if you're you know, an upcoming singer songwriter, it's kind of a cool little text to look at, to see how things were done 30 years ago compared to the way they're done now. Demi, you're, you're in the middle of the singer songwriting process. Do you find yourself, when we interview people who broke out in the eighties and nineties, do you feel yourself like, man, I wish that I was big then that I was coming up then instead of now. I mean, well, all I know is, you know, the 2000s, obviously I was born, you know, but I'm fascinated with the music industry and how it's morphed into what it is today. Um, yeah, but it's definitely awesome to get legends on the show and we could talk about that, Jordan. Absolutely. Yeah.